just, just kidding. We do all want to, let's be gracious and avoid the temptation at 11 o'clock of turning and looking toward the back doors just to see who we're welcoming with, with us at that point. No. Hey, turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at one of those texts that most people would probably rather skip. Uh, if you ask about any pastor what some of the key issues are that are central in their ministry to people, the issue of marriage is always right up there high on the list because marriages can be kind of messy, right? They're complex. There's layers and layers of different dynamics that are all at play all at the same time. In a sense, it's sort of like you, you software people will create, it's like a multi-processing kind of a supercomputer going on. And along that line, you know, sometimes marriages glitch, right? Sometimes marriages crash. Sometimes marriages need a little bit of a refresh. And sometimes marriages just plain shut down. And the Bible, of course, speaks to all of these different situations. And in this morning's text, we're going to watch Jesus correct some of the misconceptions and clarify some of the misunderstandings that are out there around marriage and around divorce and around remarriage. Um, but most importantly, I think we'll be reminded as we consider what is really a pretty complex topic, we'll be reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5. He said that where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more. So let's pray and just ask that the Lord would be our teacher this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would illuminate truth to us, Lord. Uh, even through the difficult texts, Lord, we want to be equipped. We want to be prepared, Lord, not only that we would live better, Lord, but that we might um, help point others toward you and toward your heart for them. And so we pray that you'd bless your word this morning, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, since he came back down, remember, off the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has been addressing some kind of difficult but important subjects, right? He's preparing the disciples for his departure. He was outlining all the characteristics of this coming kingdom of heaven as it would exist first on earth, right? How we as his followers are supposed to relate to one another after his departure. You remember at the end of chapter 17, he talked about walking in faith and prayer and being spiritually ready. And then beginning in chapter 18, the whole discussion about being clothed in humility and then resolving conflict and even exercising discipline to maintain the purity within the kingdom community. And finally, last week, we finished up in chapter 18 talking about extending forgiveness to one another. And this morning, as we kind of round the bend, if you will, into chapter 19, it's no surprise that we're going to deal with the subject that we'll be dealing with, right? Marriage and divorce. Because I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit, right, as he inspired Matthew's assembly of the account of the life of Jesus, that the Spirit placed this discussion regarding marriage immediately after instruction on some of the most important elements that are essential for marriage, right? Humility, forgiveness, faith, conflict resolution, 
purity, right? Because I believe, as, as I know that so many in this room would agree, that the marriage relationship in so many ways can be like a crucible, right? And that the Lord Jesus uses to refine and to reform each and every one of us who are involved in it. So after all of these foundational teachings, look at what it says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 19. It says that it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, for this is the final time that we're going to see Jesus depart from his home base region of the Galilee, right? He's headed now south down toward Jerusalem, that city where he would, of course, soon be crucified and then buried and then would be resurrected from the dead. Now, as they moved south through the beginnings of what is the Jordan River Valley, this brief pause that we've seen from this public ministry, right? As Jesus had really taken this time to pour in privately to the disciples, that pause has now come to a close. Right now we're going to see the attacks of the enemy are going to grow more and more intense. They're going to culminate, of course, in his coming crucifixion. But first, along this journey through Judea, look what it says in verse 2. It says, and a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. So even here in Judea, right beyond that base of Jesus' ministry hub in the Galilee, the crowds found Jesus, right? They were pressing in on him. They were seeking healing from him. And I think Matthew includes this specifically to help us understand, to remind us that the popularity and the power of Jesus wasn't just restricted to that Galilee region, right? Jesus wasn't simply a local phenomenon. He wasn't even simply the savior of the Galilee, right? He was the savior to all of the Jews and not simply for them, but for the world, right? That whosoever would come. Have you noticed that as we've been studying through this gospel account, most every time it mentions the multitudes, it also says that Jesus healed them which I think is just important because it reminds us that that's just what Jesus does. Amen? He brings healing. And I think it's also important to notice that the text, it also, it usually says that he healed them, but it doesn't always say that they believed in him. And the truth is that People so often come to Jesus, people often even follow after Jesus for so many different reasons, right? Some come to be instructed, some come to be healed, some simply come, don't they, out of curiosity. But what we see with Jesus is that he touches each and every one of them in some specific way. Even, as we're just about to see, even those who follow after him or who come to him simply to ensnare him. Because look what we see next, this very public setting, right? We've got the multitudes coming. They're experiencing healing. And it says at the beginning of verse 3 that the Pharisees also came to him, what? Testing him. So here with this audience, right, Jesus is providing healing for the multitudes and the Pharisees come only because they're interested in arguing. And this shouldn't be surprising to us at all because still, even today, this 
pharisaical mentality always wants to debate rather than to celebrate what Jesus is doing, right? They're always looking to find some sort of a fault with Jesus. And for these men, this encounter just continues this whole theme of conflict and of controversy with these religious leaders, right? We know that these same guys, right, this group of religious leaders, they had already tried, remember, up in the Galilee to trap Jesus. They had all their kind of sanctimonious questions about the Sabbath and about signs, and remember that they had failed. So here, now, in Judea, on the way to Jerusalem, they're going to try again. And this time they're going to try with a most controversial issue of their day as well as of our day. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, they came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So the issue of divorce and remarriage was the hot controversy of the day. And there were two main schools of thought, right, that were proposed by two influential rabbis of the day that were really fueling the debate. And both of them hung on these four simple words, for just any reason. We see right there at the end of verse three, right? So each school of thought understood that the Mosaic law did give permission for divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So each side knew and both believed in this Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. But what they didn't agree about was what constitutes uncleanness, right? So the first school of thought was the school of Rabbi Shammai. It was a more conservative, a very scriptural, a strict, unpopular viewpoint. And he understood uncleanness to mean sexual immorality. And he said that this was actually the only valid reason for divorce. Now, the second school was Rabbi Hillel, and he held a much more lax and a much more popular view, right? He said that uncleanness could mean any sort of indiscretion. For example, if a wife said anything negative about her husband's mother, that would render her unclean. If a husband saw a woman who was fairer to look upon than his wife, then his wife would have found uncleanness in his eyes, and so she would be unclean by comparison. For some rabbis, you've probably heard it said, burning a husband's breakfast would be considered valid grounds for divorce. So needless to say, Hillel had a great following, right? Amongst all the men who were looking of a way out of their marriages, right? On a, on a whim. But what we need to keep in mind as we consider this is that in the ancient world in general, and with the Jews, of course, as a result, the ancient world had a very low view of women, right? One author said that a wife was bought regarded as property, used as a household servant, and dismissed at pleasure. Now, the Jews, 
right? Just as the heathen around them, they had this low view of women, but they also had a very high ideal of marriage. The Jews looked at marriage for a man as a sacred duty. Again, one author comments that if a man was unmarried after the age of 20, except to concentrate on the study of the law, then he was guilty of breaking God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And so what happened is that their low view of women meant that their high ideal of marriage was constantly compromised because they thought that it was always the wife that was ruining it. Just putting it out there, just, right? (laughs) That's what they believed. And so all of these compromises were converted into basically the law of easy divorce, right? Just like Rabbi Hillel thought. One rabbinic saying went so far as to say that if a man had a bad wife, it was his religious duty to divorce her, right? To maintain that high ideal of marriage. Now, all of this to simply say that the divorce or the debate concerning divorce and remarriage was as heated then as it is now. Right, especially within the church. And so the Pharisees wanted Jesus to commit himself to one side or the other so that they could divide the people against him. Obviously, if he agreed with the lax school of Rabbi Hillel, then it would have been very clear that he didn't honor the law of Moses. But if he agreed with the school of Rabbi Shammai, right, then he would certainly become unpopular with the majority of the people who wanted easy divorce. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it says that there is nothing what? There's nothing new under the sun. And all of this, of course, sounds just a little bit too timely, right? And awfully current. And this is such a difficult subject because it affects so many in the church today. It affects people's lives, right? Maybe some people even in this room this morning. And so it's so important that we're able to deal with it honestly and we're able to deal with it scripturally and that we bathe it in the grace and in the humility that is supposed to characterize this kingdom community, right? In John chapter 1, it says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus have to say? Right? They had asked his opinion about the acceptable reasons for divorce. Verse 4, and he answered and said to them, have you not read? Now just stop there. Remember who he's talking to here. He's talking, of course, to the religious leaders of the day, to the teachers of Israel, to the experts in their religion and in the law. Of course, they had read, but the problem was that their sin and their preconceived positions had blinded them from really understanding. So watch what Jesus does. He does the only thing that we can do when we're faced with a similar situation. Notice the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce. They wanted to talk about rabbinical opinions. But Jesus wanted to go back where? To the scriptures. Jesus wanted to go back to the scriptures and we're gonna see he wants to talk about marriage. And just as an aside, right, the same emphasis on the scriptures and on marriage rather than on opinions and divorce 
is a wise and a healthy approach to anyone who's interested in trying to keep a struggling marriage together. Because so often what we find is that people are looking for a way out instead of looking for a way forward or instead of looking for a way up. And so what Jesus does here is he's taking them to higher ground, right? Instead of arguing about opinion, he takes them back to scripture. And notice he's going to take them way even further back than they ever could have anticipated. Verse 4 again, he answered, he said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So notice, even instead of just going back to Deuteronomy, Jesus goes back where? To Genesis. He quotes from the very beginning of Genesis, from chapter 1 and from chapter 2. He says, basically, look, let's go back further than the rabbis. Let's go back even beyond the law of Moses. Go back to the Garden of Eden, because that's where the original law of marriage was established. Because there in the garden is where you'll discover the root of the matter. See what we did there, the garden and the root of the, right? I know it's early. Stay with me, right? The root of the matter about marriage is that marriage, first of all, is a divinely appointed union, right? God was the one who gave us marriage. God was the one who established it. And so only God can speak to its character or the laws that govern it. There's no earthly court of law. There's no interpretation on earth of heavenly law that can change what God had established. And what Jesus shows us is that God's original purpose was that one man should wed one woman and that only death would break that union. Now, people may not like this kind of a literal, fundamental, narrow, you know, intolerant kind of a view but that doesn't change the fact that marriage is God's institution. It's not man's. So it is fair to say that his rules apply, right? That his design in marriage applies. And it's amazing that we would even need to make this kind of an observation. But God created men and women differently, right? With different qualities, and I actually found the following scientifically verified differences in a very esteemed medical journal. First of all, it says a man will pay $2 for a $1 item he needs, but a woman will pay a dollar for a $2 item she doesn't need, but it's on sale. Okay, that's another one. It says that women love cats. It says that men say they love cats, but when women aren't looking, men kick cats. I don't know if that's... It says a woman marries a man expecting he will change, but he doesn't. And it says a man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, and she does. This one says that a woman knows all about her children. She knows about dentist appointments and romances, best friends, favorite foods, secret fears and hopes and dreams. And a man is vaguely aware of some short people living in his house. <laughs> right? 
And here is an actual image, right? This is a scan comparing the brain activity of women versus men. And there it is up on the screen. You can see that the brain activity of a woman is a little bit more <clears throat> active, maybe even cluttered. And men, we like to keep it open and clear. The point, of course, and the only reason these things are funny at all, if they were funny at all, is that men and women were never created to be the same. And so for people to insist that they were actually degrades both men and women. Because what it does is it robs them both of their unique roles within this marriage relationship. Because the point is that despite these fundamental creation-rooted differences between the natures of men and women, in this miracle, in this mystery of marriage, God calls a husband and he calls a wife to come together as one, right? To become one new entity, to become one flesh, and to complement and to complete one another. And each one brings their unique makeup and their attributes together into this new, different relationship, right? This one flesh. Now, on the, the Hebrew, it says the reference is primarily to the physical fleshly unity, but flesh in Hebrew thought represents the entire person. The ideal unity of marriage covers the whole nature. It's a unity of soul as well as of body, of sympathy, interest, and purpose. And this is sometimes a pretty painful process, isn't it? Right? These two unlike things coming together as one, but that's all part of God's great work in marriage. It's that work of sanctifying and that work of refining each one of us as individuals, and it's the work then of producing this good parental team. And of course, that fulfills one of God's primary purposes in this institution of marriage between one man and one woman, and that's so that the human race could actually continue on. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, again, he says to Adam and Eve, it says that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, it's hard not to recognize the basic biological necessity that can only be accomplished within marriage according to God's plan for marriage. Right? The family without question, it's the fundamental, it's the foundational building block of society and it's the cornerstone of God's plan for a population that's going to be healthy. And that's precisely why Marriage and the family is under attack today because Satan knows that if he can just destabilize, if he can minimize, if he can call into question and undermine, if he can redefine that basic building block, he knows that the destructive effects are going to be cancerous. Now, we don't need to spend time on a Sunday morning lamenting the latest statistics, do we? Because all we have to do is look around and we just see the pain and we see the confusion from so many broken lives and broken homes that we all know of. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that the thief does not come except to what? 
to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it, what? More abundantly. And it's so fitting, right, in this context because the marriage relationship between a man and a woman as it was instituted by God also is meant to so beautifully picture that very same relationship between Jesus and us, right? His church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the husbands are exhorted, though, what? Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, right? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. He might present her to himself a glorious church. So just in the same way we see that Eve was taken, right, out of the side of Adam, the church was born from the wounds in Jesus' side, right? We were born from his suffering and his death on the cross, right? Jesus Christ loves his bride, the church, and he nourishes us with the word. He cleanses us and he cares for us. And we know ultimately, Revelation chapter 19, it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And so as Satan is successful, right, in damaging this institution of marriage socially, what he's also doing is he's destroying this important biblical picture spiritually, right? Our very relationship with Jesus is called into question here. Marriage is so important to God, and it should be no less important to us as well. So as an encouragement to all of us this morning, happy marriages don't happen by accident, do they? You've heard it said that marriages are made in heaven, but they have to be lived out on earth. Right? So marriages are the result of commitment and love and mutual understanding and sacrifice and hard work. But it's worth it because it's a high and a holy calling. Because when a man and a, a woman are fulfilling their marriage vows, we are actually glorifying God through that, right? And we actually start to enjoy this growing relationship and this oneness and this intimacy that's supposed to last for a lifetime just the way that the Lord intended it all the way back here in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's never easy, but it's so very important. Now, incidentally... You may have also heard it said that marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. So I'm just going to leave that on the table <laughs> for you guys in your next marital discussion. So Jesus offers us this powerful scriptural defense, right? He'd just given these guys plenty to think about. But unfortunately, watch what happens. Rather than let themselves be confused by the facts... Right? The religious leaders think that they've caught Jesus in his own words, and now they fire back with this sort of a confused cross-examination. Verse 7, it says that they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? In other words, they're saying, Hey, look, if the union of two becoming one is so important, you know, then why does the Old Testament prescribe the potential of divorce? So they said, why does he command this? Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, 
Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So the Pharisees wrongly thought that God had commanded divorce where there was uncleanness, but Jesus makes a very clear distinction between commanded and permitted. So God never commands divorce, but he does permit it. And notice the only reason he ever actually permitted it as all at all was what? Because of the what? Hardness of human hearts. Right there in verse 8. So it wasn't necessarily the sin which might occur within a marriage, but it was the hardness of hearts that could happen around that sin. That's what actually produces a humanly irreconcilable situation. It was as if Jesus was saying, look, here's the ideal, but here's the allowance of God when human sinfulness and hardness of heart has made the ideal unattainable, right? So here's grace abounding much more. Now, when there's significant and there's serious sin committed within a marriage, quite often the heart of the offending party is hard. They refuse to do what has to be done. They refuse to repent and they refuse to reconcile the relationship. But other times, understandably, it's the heart of the offended party, right? They refuse to reconcile. They refuse to work past the offense, even if there has been contrition and repentance on the part of the offender. But most often, when a marriage fails, it's because there's a hardness of hearts on both sides, right? That comes as a result of deep feelings of hurt and of bitterness and of betrayal and of unmet expectations and resentment. But the hard truth is that the hardness of heart that finally ultimately destroys a marriage so often isn't only the hardness of heart from one person against another, but ultimately it's a hardness of heart toward the Lord and his will and what he says in his word. It's that refusal to acknowledge God's sovereignty over this situation, right? And that brings us right back, doesn't it? Right back to chapter 18 and that whole command toward forgiveness sort of a dynamic. Now, I know it is never a simple situation, so please don't misunderstand me this morning. It, these things are never without terrible pain and anguish and heartache because we are all frail and broken and fallen people. But what I think that we can safely say with the witness of both the Word and the witness of the Spirit is that divorce is never God's highest. In Malachi chapter six, we, on chapter two, sorry, we often hear this quoted. It says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. But what people so seldom cite is the second half of the verse, which is actually the heart behind it. And it says that God hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. So God hates divorce not just because it always involves unfaithfulness to this covenant that was made before him, but also because it brings harmful consequences 
It brings harmful consequences to the two people involved and potentially to their children. You may have heard it said that divorce simply solves one set of problems by creating another set. So it should never be seen as a, an easy option, right? When things are difficult, people are often prone to think that it's just a change in circumstances that's always the answer to the problem. And yet the problem is usually within us, isn't it? It's not around us. The heart of every problem is the problem of every heart. And so often couples go through a divorce and they're looking for happiness in new circumstances only to find out that they've carried their problems right along with them. A Christian lawyer once remarked that about the only people who profit from divorces are the attorneys, right? It's so true that marriage is like a mirror, right? It's gonna reflect back exactly what we put in. And when both people put in forgiveness and grace and mercy and subject themselves to the will of God, then we'll start to see refreshing. Then we potentially could see restoration. And yet, it's so true that when even one of them allows that hardness of heart to take root and to grow, then indeed divorce can seem like the only option. If you're here this morning and you are struggling in a difficult season of your marriage, right? maybe it's even teetering right on the brink of divorce, let me encourage you to go to the root of the issue and start praying for softening of hearts. Right? First, that both of you would have your hearts softened toward the Lord and what his highest is for you and for your marriage, and then start to pray that your hearts would soften toward one another. Right? So Jesus said that Moses allowed divorce because of this hardness right, of hearts that we understand. And in verse 9, he says, And I say to you, now notice quickly, what's Jesus doing here? He's claiming to be God, right? Because only God can establish, only God can alter the laws of marriage. He says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this would have been one of those, like, if Jesus had the mic, this would be like one of those mic drop kind of boom moments, right? Jesus declares unequivocally that marriage was this permanent union that could only be broken by what? Sexual sin. So in this statement, he's basically solving the debate between these two rabbinical schools. He's, he's clarifying the confusion. He's interpreting what they thought was this mysterious meaning behind the word uncleanness. Right? He shows specifically it's sexual immorality. It's not just anything that might displease the husband. So, the clear intention of Jesus, right, within this kingdom ideal, right, this kingdom economy, is that divorce and the freedom to remarry is only permitted in the case of sexual immorality. Now, Paul writes extensively, of course, about this, and what he clarifies is that sexual sin is a sin specifically that we can commit against our own bodies physically. So that's why it's a sin that hits right at the heart of the union of marriage spiritually. It destroys that intimacy. 
because there is little else practically that can cut as deeply or wound a couple as this kind of betrayal. Now, let's be clear before we start letting ourselves off the hook too easily. The very specific word here that's used for sexual immorality, it's a specific word that's used, but it's a very broad term. It's the Greek word porneia. And of course, that's where we get our English word, what? Pornography. But the idea is that it covers this wide span of sexual impropriety. It covers lots of things that our culture today would tell us are just choices, right? It covers a lot of things that we would call today, some would call today to be okay. So the point is that one can be guilty of porneia without actually having consummated an act of adultery. Okay, one, one expert says that it must be admitted that the word porneia itself is a very broad one. It covers an entire range of such sins and should not be restricted unless the context requires it. But where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more. So before we start making our marriages into a toxic police state, again, we need to be clear that Jesus didn't teach that the offended party had to get a divorce. Certainly there can supernaturally, there can come forgiveness and there can come healing and a restoration of a relationship that has suffered because of these types of sexual sins. And living proof of that is standing here this morning. But sad to say, so often, and understandably, because of our sins, because of the frailties, because our hearts can become hardened, it somehow so often seems impossible that those wounds could ever be healed or that that marriage could ever be saved. And in a case like that, divorce may indeed be the final option, but it can never be the first option. Even in cases where there has been such a serious breach of that marital covenant, right? It is serious and it is damaging. And that type of sin is so serious and so damaging that Jesus says it's the only scriptural basis for divorce. And that if two people are divorced on any other basis and marry anybody else, that they are committing adultery all over again. And the simple reason for that is because in God's eyes, as he looks down from heaven, those two people are still married. Because that old union was never actually dissolved on biblical grounds. Now, this is a hard truth for us to hear. Aren't you glad you got up early and came down here this morning? Because Jesus is saying that incompatibility or just falling out of love or brutality or misery, none of those things are actually grounds for divorce, right? General unhappiness or conflict or abuse or addiction or poverty, all of these things, Paul tells us, they might be proper grounds for a separation, Right? Paul says to the Corinthians, he recognizes, he doesn't encourage, but he says that one might certainly depart in that kind of a circumstance, but they can't actually consider themselves divorced because they didn't have reasons biblically. Now, 
All of that said, we need to point out that the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians in that same chapter, chapter 7, he actually made note of one additional situation that would be included in permission to divorce, and that's the case of abandonment. Right? Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, or by extension, abandonment of even a professing, believing spouse who's acting like an unbeliever because of their actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. He says a brother or sister is not under bondage in some cases. And within this same abandonment scenario, it is possible that we can talk about the abandonment of a spouse not just from the marriage relationship, right? Not out of the marriage relationship, but even an abandonment of one of the spouses within that marriage relationship, where one party refuses to dwell with, refuses to make an effort, refuses to strive to live and to work with the other one to resolve these kinds of conflicts. So all of that, right, You've heard all that, but please hear me when you say this. And if you tuned me out before, please tune back in right now. Because a divorce that's based on unbiblical grounds may be a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. Amen? Look at perhaps the most famous marital failure in history. Right? A man who was said to be what? After God's own heart, a man named David. Right? And we know that after his affair with Bathsheba, David killed her husband to try to cover up his sin. We know that God dealt with David severely right? by, by taking his, his son you know, that was conceived through that relationship. He took that child in birth, took him right to eternity. And the death of that child greatly affected David. But what we see is that once David had been dealt with, the next child from that very same union with Bathsheba was none other than who? Solomon. Solomon, who would become the subsequent, the subsequent king of Israel, who would be part of that messianic line of Jesus. We also see that of all of David's wives, right? Of course, he had many of them. Bathsheba remained in a very prominent place. Even at the end of his life, she was right there. She still had access to David. She had a, a lot of hand. She was instrumental in establishing the next phase of the kingdom. And so when we look at David's life, right, we see that there, the Lord deals with the situation through chastening and making adjustments and correcting. But I think we can say, I do not believe that a person who's had a failure in a previous marriage lives in continual adultery in a second marriage. Because if that were the case, then we wouldn't see God blessing Solomon the way that he did. I, I do believe that where there's divorce and remarriage, there's inevitably, there's a very painful tearing away of that previous relationship. And there's a, a a coming together of this new relationship. So in that, there is an act of adultery, but Jesus doesn't say that although there's an act of adultery, that the person who remarries lives in that adultery. Does that make sense? I want to read to you Pastor John Corson 
offers this example from his own ministry. He says, I once talked with a young man about 25 years of age. He was part of our church family and on leave from an elite branch of the Air Force. He'd fallen in love with a lady who also loved the Lord, but who had been married at age 17. And after her marriage failed, she was, at age 25, a single mom. This young pilot sat in my office weeping as he said, I love this lady deeply, but if I marry her, I feel I fear we'll be living in adultery all of our lives. Pastor John said, I can't tell you what to do, but I do know this. I'm a bride and have failed greatly, but my bridegroom, Jesus Christ, was willing to absorb my pollution and iniquity to bring me into his love and into his family. Therefore, I do not believe it is against the heart of God for you to enter into a relationship to redeem that mother and child, even if it means absorbing pollution and bearing iniquity, because that's exactly what Jesus did for me. So I know we've taken a little bit of extra time this morning to address this issue, but I think it's so important that we address it. Because on the one hand, people are taking divorce way too lightly because they fail to really realize how serious it is. But on the other hand, the church too often mistakenly stands all too ready to judge and to condemn a couple who has admittedly failed, but who's now seeking after the Lord and starting a new life together. There needs to be this balance, right? There needs to be both truth and grace. And we need to apply that as we deal with this very sober, very serious matter of divorce, right? This is a lot for us to take in, right? And it was a lot for those who had just heard Jesus to take in, right? They had a lot to kind of wrestle with and to reason through. And interestingly, notice Matthew doesn't record for us any kind of a reaction from the religious leaders. I suspect because their hard-hardened hearts had nothing to say. They were unable to resist this kind of wisdom and reason and logic, right? Some of them probably saw their own sin right before their eyes. But notice the disciples, as we continue, they did have more to say. And what they did say show us that they did understand, at least to a point. Verse 10, it says, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Right? They said, look, if what you say is true, it's better not to get married at all. It's way too tricky and it's too dangerous. It's too troublesome. If you get yourself stuck in a bad marriage, you have no way out and it would be better just to stay single. So at least they understood that we're talking about a serious commitment here. But he said to them, verse 11, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So, Jesus basically makes it clear that each individual needs to consider individually God's will concerning marriage for them as an individual. Okay, now, he uses this term eunuch in a figurative sense to refer to people who might voluntarily 
abstain from marriage. And so in doing that, he's recognizing that celibacy could be good for some, but who's it good for? He who is able to accept it, right? There are some people today maybe who shouldn't get married because they have physical or even emotional problems that are present from birth. So these would kind of be eunuchs from birth, right? There are others that shouldn't get married because of their responsibilities in society, right? These are the ones who've been made eunuchs by men. And that refers to a specific ancient practice where they would castrate the man who served the closest to the king, that man who may have had access to the king's wives, they said, we don't want this to be a problem, so let's take care of that situation. In that kind of a case, because of their unique calling and their responsibility, it would be better for them to remain unmarried. Some, just like the Apostle Paul himself, some say Stingle purposely, right? That they would better be able to serve the, the Lord. They've made themselves eunuchs, if you will, by choosing to live a single lifestyle for the sake of the kingdom. Paul says to the Corinthians, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So that gift that Paul's referring to is the gift of a calling to a life of singleness. Notice it's not the command, right, as some religious traditions would say it's a gift, it's a specific calling. Paul would also later say that the, the single state, he says, is a sort of a superior state because you're able to devote yourself fully and more completely to the work of the kingdom, right? Because you don't have to worry about what your spouse is doing or thinking. Yet on the other hand, let's point out that Philip Right? Philip, the great evangelist who preached to the city of Samaria in Acts chapter 8, we saw virtually the entire city get saved. We know that he had a wife. He also had four daughters who the New Testament tells us grew up to become prophetesses. So the point is that we each need to walk in whatever calling God has given to us. So if you've been given the grace and the calling to remain single, then rejoice in that, right? Rejoice in the fact that you have this freedom that, that you've been afforded to serve God with abandon. But if you're not single, then be like Philip, right? And minister with your family and raise godly kids, right? Pointing them, bringing them to Jesus, which is what we see as we finish up Verses 13 through 15, it says, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he departed from there. Now, I don't think it's at all coincidental, do you? that Jesus' teaching about the importance of the marriage relationship is followed by the blessing of the children. Because, of course, children are the happy heritage of people who are married, right? And rather than look at them as a burden or look at them as a bother the way that the disciples saw them, Jesus saw children as the fulfillment 
of two becoming one flesh. And notice Jesus doesn't baptize the children. What does he do? He blesses them. Right? He lays hands on them and he prays for them to biblically bestow this blessing upon them. And that's precisely what we do when we do a, a child dedication or a baby dedication, right? It's precisely what every one of us as parents need to be doing daily. Now, I know that a text like today's text can be a hard one for many of us, and maybe it has been hard for you this morning. And I know that the enemy loves nothing more than to exploit our guilt and our shame over our past mistakes. And then what he does is he turns that guilt and shame mercilessly into this paralyzing doubt, right? And this lingering condemnation over our past. And what that does, of course, is it cripples us for our futures. So I want to close this morning by considering the Apostle Paul 1 Corinthians 7, 17, he says that as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Now in the context of that passage, one of Paul's ideas in this statement is a warning about trying to undo the past in regards to relationships. God tells us we're to repent wherever and whatever sin there may be but then we're to move on from that point. So if you're here this morning and you're in a subsequent marriage, even after a wrongful divorce, right, don't think that you need to leave now and go back to that old relationship to try to somehow undo the past because two wrongs don't make a right. Right? Maybe you're here this morning and an unbiblical divorce, maybe an act of adultery is part of of your story, right? And I know, right? And I, I have to imagine how you've struggled with these scriptures, right? The way that the Holy Spirit, after all of the, deaths, the dust of the incident finally settled, the way the Holy Spirit may have taken you out to the woodshed, right? To deal with some of these things. But my encouragement to you today is don't let Satan keep you out there in the woodshed. Don't let him turn that sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit into bitter condemnation and shame that you live and walk in, right? Instead, as the Lord has called you right here, right now, this morning, where you are, walk in that place. And you can do it knowing that where there's been a failure in the past, that the Lord Jesus has this beautiful, redemptive plan for your future. And all you need to do is to walk in it and to seek him with sincerity. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we pray in the midst, Lord, of, um, Lord, of things that are difficult for us to hear, Lord, of things that go against what we feel, Lord, of things that are challenging, Lord, for us to work through in our minds. We pray that by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would bring clarity. Lord, we pray against 
shame and we pray against condemnation, Lord, whether it's of ourselves, Lord, or of others, Lord, whose actions have affected us. Father, we pray that your spirit would do the work that only he can do. Lord, we pray for soft hearts. We pray for that this morning, Lord, as we worship you, as we lift up your name, Lord, for you alone are holy and worthy to be praised. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord because he is worthy. Amen.